and you are trying to somehow fit your idea of reality, which is not based on observation, into the observable universe. For me, I'm always wondering, um, how can I have confidence about such a thing when my only confidence about reality in everyday life is the observation? The Rational View is a weekly series hosted by me, Dr. Alan Scott, providing a rational, evidence-based perspective on important societal issues. Produced by Soapbox Media. Hello and welcome to another episode of The Rational View. I'm your host, Dr. Al Scott. Quantum mechanics is a strange theory. Dr. Richard Feynman said, I think it is safe to say nobody understands quantum mechanics. So why is this theory so popular if nobody even understands it? How is this the basis for all of our physical knowledge of particles and their interactions? Well, quantum mechanics, what I've learned going through physics as an undergrad and a graduate student, quantum mechanics did not come from a philosophical deep understanding of the structure of reality. It came from observations made in repeatable experiments on particles. And these observations could not be explained by classical means, by assuming that the particles had a reality when they weren't being observed. And that's horribly difficult to understand. For a long time, physicists were unable to decide if fundamental particles acted like billiard balls or like waves. And neutron scattering experiments showed that these are objects acted like tiny billiard balls or, or nu nuclear scattering, I should say. This duality uh, between uh, acting like billiard balls and waves was unlike anything anyone had seen in a ma macroscopic sense. There, there's no good analogies in everyday life to this behavior. The strangeness of quantum mechanics was best seen in the dual slit experiment, where you direct a stream of subatomic particles at a screen with two slits. And instead of getting two hills on a detector, or on a piece of film behind those slits, what you see is an interference pattern of peaks and valleys, as though the particles were uh, waves being pushed through that uh, pair of slits. But when they hit the screen, they showed up as dots. They were, again, back to billiard balls, tiny billiard balls. And what does it mean? Physicists have found that if you can find out enough to distinguish between the paths that a particle takes, the interference pattern disappears. If you, if you look at the particles as they're going through, if you tag them in some way, they no longer interfere. They become distinguishable. But if they're indistinguishable, you get interference. And this means uh, that we don't know what's going on from analogy. What does it mean? About a century ago, we found that the Schrodinger equation uh, of quantum mechanics accurately describes the product, the progress of the wave function of any system of particles through any experiment. And it can be used to determine the probability distribution of large numbers of particles going through repeated interactions. But it said nothing about how uh, an individual particle goes through. It said nothing about how particles turned from waves into particles or when they were each different one. It was up to the physicists to interpret this, to get a consistent interpretation of the math. And this was coined as the measurement problem. What aspect of a measurement collapses this distributed wave function to a single point-like interaction? Nobody knew. There are no arbitrary constraints on this interaction. This is just something that physicists say, okay, we've observed it, now it's here, the wave function has collapsed. But what aspect of the measurement collapses the wave function? Do you need to be an intelligent observer to do this? Do you just need uh, an atomic interaction, an energy sh uh, sharing interaction? Nobody knew. What are the possible interpretations? Many physicists feel uncomfortable dealing with the philosophical implications of this problem. The only thing we do know is that the theory, as far as it goes, is unequivocally, unquestionably correct. 
It's the most highly verified physical theory that we have. And it's been measured to something like 23 orders of magnitude to be correct through very precise experiments. And there's been several different interpretations. The Copenhagen interpretation, you know, a hundred years ago got the got us the basic idea that the wave function is just a probability distribution. And we by calculating uh, the the magnitude of this wave function and integrating over your measurement space, then you get the probability that a particle will end up there. And that's all it says. But there are other interpretations that try to give reality to the particles. Um, the the many worlds theorem says that the wave function never collapses, and making it and the particles have basic reality as far as I understand. And making a measurement doesn't collapse the wave function, but it tells you which of an infinite number of universes you're actually in. And until you make that measurement, you have this probability distribution of universes that you might exist in. And all these universes are overlapping and interfering. A recent innovative experiment fires neutrons through a double slit and proves that each neutron goes through both slits at the same time. If you like what you're hearing, Please press like on your podcast app, share it with your friends, or join us to discuss these experiments on my Facebook group, The Rational View. Professor Holger Hoffmann studied physics in his hometown of Stuttgart, Germany, then went to Tokyo University for a postdoctoral fellowship in 1999. Now at Hiroshima University, his research is focused on the way quantum theory describes observable phenomena. He believes that the key to a proper understanding of quantum mechanics can be found by exploring the practical means that we need to employ to achieve optimal control over a physical system. Dr. Hoffman, welcome to The Rational View. Thank you. Dr. Hartmut Lemmel studied physics in his hometown, Vienna, and graduated at the Vienna University of Technology in the group of Helmut Rausch, who is the father of neutron interferometry. After his PhD in 2007, he stayed in the group and was posted to the Institut Laue Langevin in Grenoble as instrument responsible for the neutron interferometry setup. Dr. Lamel, welcome to The Rational View. Thank you. So together, you have recently published what I consider to be a groundbreaking paper called Quantifying the Presence of a Neutron in the Paths of an Interferometer. And I just want to read the abstract and then we can discuss. Um, so the abstract says, it is commonly assumed that no accurate experimental information can be obtained on the path taken by a particle when quantum interference between the paths is observed. However, recent progress in the measurement and control of quantum systems may provide the missing information by circumventing the conventional uncertainty limits. Here we experimentally investigate the possibility that an individual neutron moving through a two-path interferometer may actually be physically distributed between the two paths. For this purpose, it is important to distinguish between the probability of finding the complete particle in one of the paths and the distribution of an individual particle over both paths. We accomplish this distinction by applying a magnetic field in only one of the paths and observing the exact value of its effect on the neutron's spin in the two output ports of the interferometer. The results show that individual particles experience a specific fraction of the magnetic field applied in one of the paths, indicating that a fraction or even a multiple of the particle was present in the path before the interference of the two paths was registered. The obtained path presence equals the weak value of the path projector and is not a statistical average but applies to every individual neutron verified by the recently introduced method of feedback compensation. Wow. Holger, could you provide some background and what motivated this particular experiment? Okay. Yeah. Well, there's a lot of background here and <laughs> thanks for reading the whole abstract. It's quite a lot, right? Um, yes, yes. Yeah. That's uh, been an old problem, really, what actually happens between sending in a particle into an interferometer and detecting it at the output. And the conventional wisdom is really that we cannot tell. So if we go back to the Copenhagen interpretation, it's basically just uncertainty. And if you measure the interference, you really know nothing about the path of the particle. 
But there has been some progress here, especially with the idea that you could make an interaction so weak that the interference doesn't disappear. And then maybe you could get a signal out. Um, and on the average, actually, you would get the values that we also get. But there has been a big controversy because that's statistics and the noise is huge. And this new method that um, actually I introduced uh, basically just uh, one year before, um, this new method using a feedback basically confirms that this weak value is completely accurate and has no errors. Now, the reason why this is possible is that we focus on the amount of change that the system obtains. In this case, that's the rotation of the spin. And if you look at the details of the paper, the spin of the neutron is really the probe. It gets rotated. And the normal problem is that the spin is so quantum noisy, so uncertain, that if you just look at the spin, you don't see much information. But what I found is that the trick is really that if you compensate the rotation and then look in the direction where the spin is maximal, basically detect it at 100%, always in the same direction. To do that, you need the information how big the angle of rotation is. That's why it doesn't work in the forward direction. Um, there, there is this old paradox that if you could measure where the particle is before the interference happened, then you would normally argue that even if the interference doesn't happen, the same result must come out. So suppose that afterwards you just decide to measure which path the particle is in. Uh, we know that if you directly detect the particle in the past, you find it or you don't find it. That's just two possibilities. So the big paradox is when you do interference, how come the particle can be distributed? A lot of people would call that a paradox and even dismiss the possibility. But what we find is that the rotation angle is really determined in this fractional way. It's just that you cannot use the small rotation to get the information. So what you're doing is in, you have an interferometer which has two paths that the neutron could choose randomly, uh, thinking about it in a classical way. <laughs> yes. uh, and in one of these paths, there's a magnetic field that rotates the spin of the neutron a little bit. And so from when I learned physics, it said that if there's any which way information on in an interferometer, it would destroy the, interfer the interference pattern. You would just it would just choose one of the two paths and you wouldn't, you'd no longer have interference. So, so what's happening here is that you're somehow providing some which way information and not destroying the interference. Can you, can you explain how that works? Yeah. The information has to be really small. The trick here is we are not using uh, the information on the spin rotation to determine the path. We are determining the interference outcome. And then we make a conclusion from the interference outcome what the path should be uh, and um, reverse the rotation. Right? So the point is that we can accurately test whether we have estimated the right rotation angle, even so we cannot read out the rotation angle in the forward direction. So. This is actually a very tricky business with the difference between extracting information and verifying a hypothesis. Mm. So mm. It's a little bit tricky yeah. because, <laughs> I mean, you would normally say, I mean, this is not a measurement. The spin is not measuring the path. You cannot see the path by looking at the spin. But you can confirm the presence in the path by testing the spin hmm. and and this and the measurement implies that the you don't get some neutrons with a little with the full rotation some without what you get is a fraction of the rotation in all of the neutrons and this yes. 
means that the neutron has split itself between these paths effectively, then just like the wave function does. So the wave yes. function splits up and and then the question is what's the interpretation? And you have some interpretations that there's a, a pilot wave guiding us a, a real small particle through one or the other of the paths, or you have um other ideas that um, you know you have multiple worlds and and the measurement tells you which world you're in and the, in one world the particle took this path in the other world the particle took the other path and these worlds interfere and so so you're showing you're basically showing uh, doing a, a an experiment which I think actually tests these interpretations is that is that was that the the idea behind this. Um, I wouldn't say that's the idea behind that, um, but it effectively is like that. Um, <laughs> for my side, I can say uh, that my whole interest here comes from what I said in the um, uh, introduction, actually. Um, I really don't think that we can um, make a meaningful argument about interpretations without considering what we are talking about in terms of the evidence. So you need to actually have an effect. And in fact, when we wrote the paper and we had a long discussion about this problem, uh, what is the presence of a particle? And the problem here is that we all imagine that we know what the presence of a particle is, but in reality, um, this knowledge comes from thinking we can see it, thinking we can touch it. So if the particle okay. cannot be seen or touched, it's actually a pretty difficult question what we mean by the presence of the particle. So that's, I think, is mm. the, the big problem, for example, with the guiding wave theory, that these particles do not actually have any other role except that you claim that when you detect it at the end, it's because it traveled along a path that nobody ever saw. So we are imagining that we could make ourselves really small and look, where's the particle? But there is no physics to that. You can't do that. This seems to be like the overlap of physics and philosophy. <laughs> yeah, but it's, it's rather important because a physicist also has to know what they're doing. And the danger is that we are actually using language in the wrong way. This, this has been overlooked, I think, uh, in the very beginning of quantum mechanics. Uh, there's actually an interesting um, piece of writing by Heisenberg, where Heisenberg basically explains that Quantum mechanics constitutes an abuse of language, but that cannot be avoided because the classical language does not work. Mm, yeah, there, there is no classical analog to this situation that you yes. can't get a good uh, a good feeling for what the heck is going on. <laughs> right. There is no macroscopic experience, right? Okay, maybe, maybe Hartmut wants to say something about that. It would also be interesting because, of course, Hartmut is closer to the actual experiment and deals with what is happening there. So. Yeah, well, I'm the, the experimentalist of, of, the, of this uh, work. And um, in my group, we are doing neutron interferometry since uh, for, for, a, for a few decades already. And uh, in, in the neutron interferometer, the neutron beam is split into two paths and then the neutrons recombine. Uh, but it is done uh, not with like laser waves, but it's with neutrons, which are massive particles. And if you look at the velocity of the neutrons and take into account the size of the apparatus, etc., you conclude that every neutron takes uh, uh, a tenth of a microsecond to pass the apparatus. But the intensity is so low that only every every microsecond there is one neutron in average. So you see, there are never two neutrons simultaneously in the apparatus, and still uh, an interference pattern uh -huh. builds up. So it is a clear sign that it is single particle interference. It is self-interference. Each particle somehow feels both waves, go, uh, both ways, goes both ways. So um, our finding is actually, in, in, in my feeling, uh, I, was, I was not surprised. Uh, this is what, what I also imagined, always imagined. And um, if we talk about the, 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 the pilot wave or interpretations like that, in, in my opinion, if you say every neutron is accompanied by a pilot wave, then it's an in integral part of, of this particle. So if, 
if you say, okay, the neutron itself goes only one way, but the pilot waves goes both ways, I think you haven't won anything. It's it's a it's a semantic mm. question. <laughs> I'm very tempted here to to ask. <laughs> Even so, I should know, but I would like to point out and ask about the final detection of the neutron. I mean, the neutron is actually detected in the end in a nuclear reaction, as far as I understood that. Is yeah, that's correct. So. Right. Here's the tricky part for the pilot wave theory, because basically the pilot wave theory drops the use of the wave completely at the moment of this detection. So there's a little bit of a strange idea that this kind of interaction, this nuclear reaction at the end is completely different in nature from the quantum mechanics we used before. Um, Of course, uh, I guess that uh, in the experiment, the control of this process is uh, not very precise, right? Well, there's a uh, certain volume. Uh, it's a it's a gas cell where the, the neutron can be absorbed mm -hmm. by, by helium-3 uh, nuclei. And they then send out um, um, particles which are actually then, then detected. And yeah... In, in 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 principle one one can one can find out where where this happened exactly and up and to a certain happened. precision which as a theorist i would yes, say the precision yes. is not that high because um <laughs> if i would calculate uh, the interferences that are involved here and there are interference there i mean i would need information that i never get in the experiment in this case well i mean in the in the neutron interferometer we don't need a very high resolution because mm -hmm. we have only two exit beams But there exists, of course, also uh, neutron detectors with spatial resolution and yeah. time resolution, and of course, it's a, it's a, a question of of technology yeah. and mm. statistics. What what accuracy you get out of it? Maybe you could uh, walk us through a little bit more through the hardware you need uh, to make this measurement. How how is this experiment set up, Hartmut? So the neutron interferometer consists of a perfect silicon crystal. So that's a crystal about the size, well, 20 centimeter long. Uh, and there are three lamellas standing up of a, out of a common crystal base. And each lamella is a beam splitter. So this is based on, on Bragg diffraction. Uh, the neutron beam with, with the right angle and the right wavelength is diffracted on, on the, by the lattice of the crystal. And if you do it right, then you have a 50-50 chance that the neutron is transmitted or reflected. And this is then mm -hmm. again in, in, in the middle lamella where the neutron beam is reflected, reflected again towards each other. And then in the last lamella, the, the two beam, beam paths are superimposed. And then they leave the, the interferometer set up in different directions. And then half a meter away or whatever space you need, you put a, a, the neutron detector and detect the, the neutrons. And the in, in between, inside the interferometer, you have space to place spin flippers or spin rotators, absorbers, whatever you like. And yeah, although it's every single neutron which is going these two paths, the paths are macroscopically separated by, by in the order of centimeters. So you have two different paths, centimeters apart. And, and in... What's the what's the wavelength of a neutron? What's you know a wave packet that represents the neutron? That's that's two angstrom, so two times ten to the minus ten meter. That's really small. That's that's the 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 about the the distance of two atoms in the silicon crystal. Right. So the the intrinsic size. Very small, and that's why the interferometer is very sensitive to vibrations. For example, if you move one of these crystal lamellas. By one lattice constant, you would introduce already a phase shift of two pi, and so you have to control the relative position between these lamellas really, really good. That's why uh, why they are made monolithically out of they are cut out of a single crystal and which they are still physically connected, so that they are also kept in position, always kept in position. So this is one big silicon crystal that has various interaction zones in it? Mm -hmm. Right. Wow. And then you have to 
basically get rid of vibrations of you know, angstrom level. Exactly. This sits on an optical table, which uh, damps the vibrations. The, the temperature should be uniform. It should not change because then the, the, the lattice constant changes, etc. How, how long, how long did it take to set this up to make these measurements? This particular experiment, for example, I think, I think we had beam time of two weeks and approximately it was 10 days alignment and then a few days, uh, data taking. Wow. That's, that's impressive. That's actually very quick. For <laughs> yeah, it should be mentioned. It, it's much quicker than we are in optics, but the reason is that, I mean, uh, Hartmut and the guys are very well set up really. So, um, the equipment is already present. Um, That's it. We uh, we didn't have to to develop new new components or so. Exactly. Use what we had. Interesting. So, were you uh, were you surprised at the results, or was this what you expected to see? Yeah, I, I expected it, but um, I was surprised that, that the theory um, can can make make this this statement that it really applies to every single neutron. Right. Right. Um, and um, I wasn't surprised because the theory made me quite confident that this would <laughs> be the result. But I have to say, when I discovered the theory, I was a bit surprised myself that this is possible. Right. So um, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. The, the, the essential point is really that um, before I too had thought of these spin rotations as something that you cannot directly observe or measure, and I hadn't thought of the possibility of compensating the rotation and confirming that nothing happened. That was really a new idea. Um, and that changed the whole situation a bit. Right, um, and right. right. So, you're, so you're applying a compensation after they've recombined? Yes, yes. After the interference. So the trick here is that Actually, the theory also says that there's a quantum interference effect involved that actually changes the angle of rotation depending on which balance of interference you have. It's a little bit complicated. So this is precisely where quantum mechanics is quite different from classical physics. Um, when I did the theory, and that's something that has not been considered enough, um, if you interfere whole operations, you can sometimes get a new operation completely out of two operations that were completely different. Right? So it's not the same as interference <laughs> of waves. Right? It's really an interference of operations. Or So the story of what happened is actually quite flexible. Right? And this is what happens to the spin rotation. So um, if you look at the spin rotation in the one path, it's this alpha rotation, and in the other path, there is no rotation. So you think these are the two possibilities. But after the interference, you actually get new possibilities. Now, you shouldn't say that it's after the interference, actually, because before the interference, you simply have ambiguity. In the okay. end, and after the interference, you could undo the interference, then you would go back to ambiguity. So... This is where you have to go all the way to the final measurement. And that's the confusing thing. In the end, this is, this is where this thing comes in for me with the nuclear reaction at the very end, right? That's where things are finally pinned down. Because before that, all the interactions were too weak to establish their own reality. And that's a little bit... Um, <laughs> Different. It, this is actually where quantum theory comes into its own, in my opinion. Right? That okay. in the end, in, in, because when you imagine forces in classical physics, a force pushes something and there's a change. And the change is a fact. And quantum mechanics, there is absolutely no description of a change where you can then identify the amount of change inside the object. Yeah. So this is the price we pay in a sense for quantization for this wave function stuff. Yeah. So you said something completely different can happen that you're not doing to the particle. Could you give an example of what could? Well, it's, a, it's the rotation angle in our case, right? So this, this is this confusion. I mean, we think we do to the particle either the alpha rotation or zero. And then after the interference, we look at the particle and 
we actually, by this compensation, confirm that it was a two-thirds alpha rotation. That then leads to the conclusion that the best way to understand it is that the particle was two-thirds present in the path. But this actually shows that, this also shows that there is a bit of a problem with a typical Feynman path interpretation, because the Feynman path interpretation gives you the feeling that it's either here or there, even so it's superposition. But the superposition itself creates this fractional presence. What is important, what is, what is very confusing is, I mean, the initial wave function itself is not enough, right? If you have an initial wave function, it could still be completely random. It could be zero or one, or it could be actually something else. In order to pin down the values, you need the final detection as well. So you need the initial preparation, the final detection, and the combination of two coherences creates these fractional presences, which creates this problem that you always imagine that if you want to find it in the past, you have to detect it in the past. And then the result is zero or one. But right. if you don't detect the past, but detect something else, and, and this was also a development that happened in the early 2000s, right? Uh, that is, uh, in the paper also you might find, we talk about Osawa, the Osawa uncertainties, and specifically the Osawa Hall uncertainties. And that has something to do with a measurement theory introduced by Professor Osawa here in Japan, uh, Nagoya. Um, this measurement theory evaluates the error of a measurement when you are actually measuring something completely different, possibly. So the measurement is all general. You don't have to measure this physical property. And then you still attach a physical value to the physical property for this outcome. And Professor Osawa showed that mathematically you can calculate an error of that. And um, it turns out that uh, this theory basically predicts that the weak values have the lowest error. That was then discovered by Hall in Australia. So um, there's a connection here with the weak values. And Professor Osawa is also using the initial state and the final measurement outcome in order to talk about a completely different physical property. Hmm. Um, so to understand that better, it's good to use the idea of statistical correlations. You have initial information, and then you measure something okay. that is correlated with what you want to know. The initial information is the correlation. It says, for this state, the relation between this property and the other property I want to know is given. So after I see the other property, I can add the two pieces of information. Um, and it looks very much as if that was the case. And in fact, it's very consistent, only that the values you get are not the eigenvalues in this case. So it's let me let me go over this one more time, yeah. um, just so I make sure I understand. So you're firing the neutrons into two paths, or into a path, and then it splits into two paths. You're doing a, a, a small spin rotation in one of the paths. You're putting a magnetic field that... So when the neutrons come in, are they uh, spin aligned? Are they are they all? Yes, yes, they are. They are polarized. They are prepared in a certain initial direction. So you give one path has a slight rotation on the spin vector. They come back together and interfere, and they choose a path, and then they are detected. And then you have a, a second magnetic field that can correct for any spin misalignment of the particles. So you can't actually measure how much spin they've had if they're interfering, but if you rotate them back a fraction of the amount of spin rotation that was given to the one path, you you correct all of them back to to aligned. Yeah. yeah. Wow. <laughs> so you're actually not measuring the rotation at all. You're you're just canceling what rotation was given and it's, it's it's odd to me that it was it's not one half why is it not one half is it uh, is this something that comes out of the math because we uh, <laughs> deliberately changed the balance between the paths and that has something to do 
with okay. correlations, as I said before. Now, you can get one half. Uh, there's a slight problem with this. Um, but, um, and actually, the slight problem is uh, not so slight because when you balance the interferometer, you have almost 100% of the output only in one direction. And that creates a bit of a problem because uh, you should be able to also see the other direction. But when the probability is close to zero, um, it's hard to deal with that. Yeah? So you actually mm -hmm. don't want to have perfect interference. It's much easier if you change the balance between the paths. In our case, we had 90% in one direction, 10% in the other. So um, then we, we can, e in principle, see both outputs, right? It's not a zero mm -hmm. percent problem. Um, but it also means something else about the, um, <laughs> it changes from one half to another value because the imbalance between the path corresponds to a correlation between the interference and the path. So the correlation is then changed. Hmm? Uh, the one half, one half means basically no correlation. So you measure the outcome and all you get is a confirmation because in the one half, one half case, you would initially know it's uh, equal probability in both. Hmm? and therefore equal average intensity mm -hmm. in both. And it just confirmed that this is always the case and the particle really splits one half, one half. In our case, um, whether I measure the 90% port or the 10% port really makes a difference because there's a correlation between the outcome and the path. So in the 90% outcome port, in the constructive interference, we get two thirds. But in the destructive interference at 10%, we get two. Looks as if there's a double neutron in the one path. Oh, that okay. Has, yeah, there is, you're throwing a wrench into my thinking here. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, it is not, not that simple because um, these are the anomalous weak values that have confused a lot of people. Hmm. By the way, uh, Holger, yeah, I mean, this ratio we have chosen, this is arbitrary we can we can yes. prepare it yes to have any any ratio we mm -hmm. we chose some some nice values so that's why it's one third and two thirds mm -hmm. but uh, actually these values are too nice because two people already asked me well yes. it's probably related to, to the quark structure you know every newton has th three quarks in it so one quark goes left Two goes right. Uh, I just want to <laughs> clarify, this is not the case. The quarks are not separated. We don't care about the internal structure of the neutron. It's the mm. whole neutron which goes to one third here mm. and two thirds there, for yes, example. And it should really be said that the one half, one half case also exists, but it causes problems because of the zero probability prediction for the destructive interference. If you are doing the experiment too well, you are in real trouble. <laughs> That's not what we wanted to have. <laughs> So, wow. Okay. So, so, but this is cool to, to me that the, the philosophy of the interpretation of quantum mechanics, that how this experiment bears on that is, is really interesting because I, I never thought anyone would be able to come up with a, an experiment that would test say the, the many worlds theorem or the, or the pilot wave theorem. But we have these theorems that, that kind of posit a real particle. The people, you know, people are very uncomfortable with having wave functions represent the root of reality, and the, you know they want to have real particles existing. But quantum mechanics tells us that there's no hidden variables. That you know, particles when they're not being observed don't have paths, and so we've come up with these philosophical ideas to maybe explain how they could have paths, and maybe the you know the money wave and many worlds theorem you know posits that the wave function never collapses, and that an observation is just telling you which universe you're in, uh, and each particle does exist and and has real paths in all of these different universes, and you just don't know which universe you're in until you measure it. And I think this makes that an untenable interpretation, but well, it's certainly a critical commentary on this. Um, as I said before, for me, it's for a long time, it was really essential that there needs to be something you can observe. And the weakness of the theories that you just listed here and described very nicely um, is always that these things are not observed 
and you are trying to somehow fit your idea of reality, which is not based on observation, into the observable universe. For me, I'm always wondering, um, how can I have confidence about such a thing when my only confidence about reality in everyday life is the observation? And I think that's my criticism mm -hmm, of mm -hmm. uh, the theory. So what I think we have done, and which is great, is we have actually demonstrated that you can be a bit more careful with the experimental investigation of questions like where the particle is. And it is possible to design, in this case, not really a measurement, but a verification method that tells you something about the physics of the presence of a particle, which is not quite the same as the reality of a presence of a particle. And, and that's maybe what causes the confusion because the idea of reality is um, going a little bit beyond effects and observations. Um, and that's, I think, there's mm -hmm. a misunderstanding mm -hmm. that uh, people who think they're realists think they're not philosophical, but... Mm, what you mean by reality is a very philosophical question. It gets back to the, you know, the original uh, controversy over dualism, right? You know, the, the particle is yes. both a wave. It's both a wave and a particle depending on what it's doing. And, and if you're not observing it, it doesn't have a reality. It's yeah. the dreams that stuff is made of. <laughs> so, yeah, you could say that. <laughs> How certain are these results? What, what are possible um, possible confounding factors? Are there are there any anything that that causes you to to hesitate about this result? Um, well, for my side, I'm pretty much aware of what some of the criticisms are because I get them all the time. I have been getting them for years and years, and uh, I take them seriously. So I'm not uh, not dismissing that. So what the criticism here is um, basically um, is in this idea that um, you know where the effect comes from. Right? So it is actually a, a bit of a problem that we also discussed at length, that we are now saying that this uh, spin rotation definitely comes from the presence of the particle. But there is, of course, a school of thought that tries to give more reality than that to, let's say, the mathematical description. So there is an idea that the interpretation that this um, rotation originates from the presence of the particle or from the magnetic field that the particle saw has the flaw that the way we calculate this does not include a mathematical definition of what a force is, or mathematical definition of what a magnetic field, what the quantity of the magnetic field really means, let's say that. So there is this problem um, of the mathematics. And, and that's um, a huge uh, impact on, for example, many world interpretation, which basically says that. It says the mathematics is in some sense superior to uh, arguments like ours, where we are saying that for cause and effect reasons, it should be the presence of the particle that makes the rotation two-thirds, right? Um, mm -hmm. And it can be very difficult to argue with these positions because in some sense, these are Platonist ideas of physics. Um, and in Platonism, or in a trivial version of Platonism, the idea is always that we are just in this cave and see shadows on the wall. So the experimental result is a mere shadow of a higher reality. And so it's, it's kind of then saying, well, the mathematics is so beautiful. Why, why are you dragging, dragging it down to this uh, rather low level right, of uh, actually taking uh, this compensation so seriously um, 
And um, that also has to do with then the question, have we understood because of this experiment, one could actually argue that we have a new idea of what entanglement is. But then a lot of people would actually now say entanglement is a thing in itself, like energy or so, it's a resource. So we are happy to basically say there are no individual objects anyway, everything is entangled. And we are cutting that deliberately into pieces again. So, um, that is why the first argument and the first discussion has to be, um, is it possible in modern physics and modern quantum mechanics to agree that we have to put experimental evidence first? Basically, the argument is skepticism. You say, you have experimental evidence. Of course, the click in the detector and so on, that is not controversial. But you shouldn't argue that it shows anything. The mathematics tells you what the experiment shows. Um, and you see that a lot, like, uh, for example, many world theory and uh, also Bohmian mechanics. That's what I said about the Bohmian mechanics. The click in the detector is taken as proof for the whole existence of the particle before. But it's just this end click of the detector. Huh? And then the mm -hmm. argument mm -hmm. is that it's done for the beauty and completeness of the theory. And then people normally argue in the opposite direction is we want to believe this theory and now we prove it somehow. Mm -hmm. And I'm just thinking we should only talk about experimental evidence and try to find a larger variety of possible experiments. This is how we learn about what is the, the proper interpretation. I think this this we need more experiments like this to inform a better understanding of, of the of the physics because I mean, it really quantum mechanics is an unfinished theory. It it doesn't describe the measurement problem. It doesn't you know the, the, there's the Copenhagen interpretation that the wave function is a probability function and um, shut up and calculate. <laughs> yeah, I, I would have I, I would actually say I saw your uh, description of the Copenhagen interpretation. I would modify that a little bit because I. I wouldn't say I grew up with that, but uh, almost grew up with the teachings of Heisenberg, especially. <laughs> and there's a lot of depth in the Copenhagen interpretation. The biggest problem is it's a kind of agnostic interpretation. You are right about the shut up and calculate. In, in German, I would call that the Denkverbot. It's not allowed to think. <laughs> and as a student, <laughs> I was very upset about the Denkverbot. Uh, I didn't like that about the Copenhagen interpretation. Um, but otherwise, it's very deep because it basically emphasizes that you cannot really know about things that cannot be observed. But the big problem is that Copenhagen also doesn't actually tell you how to judge what you can observe. That That's where the problem is, right? Yes. Mm. It doesn't tell you what an observer is or or, or what classifies an observation. Yeah. And also what things you can actually observe and whether there are things you cannot observe. When I was studying, I was there was I remember one time where I was really a bit upset from the quantum mechanics lecture because everything was about the Hamiltonian and energy. And I think, what does that mean? Can we only measure energy suddenly? I mean, that doesn't make sense because um, actually energy measurement is rather difficult. You don't have any intuition of an energy measurement really. But Still, mm -hmm. I mean, so I taught you have to ham diagnose the Hamiltonian and nobody really explains why. <laughs> so, um, I think it gets back to conservation laws, right? I mean, you, you have these conservation laws and these things you feel must have some reality to them because they're conserved. Yeah. And thermodynamics, of course, is very important. So thermodynamics uses the energy. And thermodynamics uses little else. Mm -hmm. uh, we did mostly solid state physics and solid state physics, you start basically with a material that has a temperature and then you perturb it a little bit and then something happens. And that is most easy mm -hmm. to describe using the eigenstates of energy. But that's the problem that you cannot really easily generalize that. So when I, I learned about optics, this whole thing collapsed very quickly because in optics, that's absolutely not the case. 
So laser light is a coherent superposition of different photo numbers. It's absolutely necessary to use that because you get macroscopic waves. So, hmm. Interesting. Yeah. And so what, what, is, what, what is your interpretation of quantum mechanics? What, what do you think? I mean, this is something that we all want is, is you know, a, a better understanding of reality. And, you know, is there a reality to understand even? I, I don't know. I, I don't know what to think. Well, um, I wouldn't call it an interpretation, really, but um, I have a tendency <laughs> to... I mean, basically, what I'm looking for in quantum mechanics is an explanation of actual experience. The way we experience the world should be explained in a consistent manner. Um, and one thing where I'm a bit different from uh, a lot of colleagues, at least, uh, is that I'm basically saying, for me, reality starts from our side, from what we experience. And then we have to try to find our way all the way down. And the only way to do that is to understand the relation of causality that allows us to build all the machinery, like in the neutron interferometer, right? So there's a causal connection here. We build these, these objects. We make our crystals, we put them in the right place, we make sure they don't shake and so on. Um, and these are all causal chains. They're basically um, creating the causes that ultimately will create the detection of the neutron at the very end. It's a long chain. In this chain, we rely on causality. We rely on laws of physics that are not about reality at all. They are just about relations. I mean, for example, uh, we, we do say, I mean, Hartmut is setting up this crystal and we talked about this is amazing that it's basically precise down to the atoms, right? But of course, that is not, you, you don't basically see the atom when you do that. <laughs> So the interesting thing is that you can do that even so you're handling this big block of material. You've just made sure it's very good, very pure material. And uh, then uh, I don't know exactly what methods you use to fix that. I was always thinking about this. You know, Bohr had all of these old pictures with the slits that are screwed down. <laughs> and I was sometimes saying to students, you know, the, the thing is when you screw down something that's elastic, so you're basically fixing things with a kind of spring. Yeah? So it's obvious that even so you don't see it, everything is shaking. And it, it's interesting that I'm, we're not normally aware of that. We just ignore that, right? <laughs> and then we have to use some tricks if the experiment gets so difficult that you have to be very precise. Right? So you're basically positing that you know, we're not attacking any underlying reality here that we're, we're measuring relations between observables and, you know, you can be agnostic, you know, as it what was that German word you called it? <laughs> Don't think. <laughs> Don't go beyond the, the math. <laughs> well, the tank for board is a negative word. I mean, I, 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 I wouldn't endorse the Deng for board, quite the opposite. And also I would say here, uh, I would say for me, uh, atoms are real enough. I had this, uh, there was an interesting conversation with Ephraim Steinberg years back when he actually visited us in, in Japan. Uh, I mean, he, he did all the weak measurement experiments and uh, Toronto University. So, um, uh, so we had an interesting conversation about um, the question of realism, right? Uh, so he was listening to me and then saying, but you know, you you sound as if you wouldn't believe that there's a backside to the moon because you haven't seen it. And I said, no, 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 that is a complete misunderstanding. Of course, I very much believe there's a backside of the moon because I know that I could see it if I went there. And that's quite enough. So I'm not the fanatic kind of anti-realist here, but I would want to know how do I experience that? So yeah, atoms are very real because we have several ways of experiencing atoms up to the point mm -hmm. of putting one atom in a trap and actually seeing it. 
I think we should take that more seriously, that objects become real by interacting. And most objects interact enough. But still, you can build an interferometer using atoms. Even you can use uh, large molecules and, and build, build an interferometer of them. So it depends on the context, whether you can see them. If, if they're in this special interferometer that Hartman has built, suddenly they're not real. Yes, yes, exactly. They are still real, but they can be simultaneously at two locations. Interesting. Wow, this is great. Yeah, um, but that depends on the interactions. I and mean, this is the thing, the macroscopic objects interact massively. And that makes them very robust, right? I'm always telling the students and... Actually, I did a calculation uh, uh, when I was the first time in Japan. It was 95, actually. Uh, I wrote down a calculation quantizing the moon. Because as you know, Einstein raised this question, is the moon there when nobody's looking? Now, my, my answer to Einstein would be spontaneously, it's pretty hard not to look <laughs> with regard to the moon. The moon is hard not to see. <laughs> and, but there's actually a calculation here and it's, it's a fun calculation. I mean, I hope I get the numbers roughly right. So the angular momentum of the moon around Earth is 10 to the 68 h-bar. And when one photon comes from the sun and is scattered to us from the moon, that changes the angular momentum of the moon by 10 to the 15 h-bar. Wow. One photon. And you never really know how many photons are scattered by the moon because it's statistics and basically root n photons is noise. So basically the moon is experiencing quite a diffusion of the angular momentum all the time. That is the measurement back action here really. So, um, it's no wonder that the moon is easily localized. Um, it's an open system, it's super noisy. So this decoherence argument is, is very easy to make. And I would be saying just that the moon is really the sum of all the effects that the moon has. Only the moon has lots of effects. Right, right. It's very well tied to the universe through interactions. That's, that's, uh, that's an interesting way to think of yeah, things. It's basically screaming loudly, here I am. <laughs> so... So this is a, a, a groundbreaking paper. I'm sure you're going to get a lot of uh, publicity from it. Um, what What are you guys thinking about working on next? What's What's next? Well, I have thought of. I mean, we have done different experiments, also with weak weak values, like the quantum Cheshire cat, uh, different things, and but they were uh, measured always uh, with as a as a weak measurement, which applies only to the whole ensemble. So one could think about which experiment can be refined by the new method to get really um, answers about each individual particle. And then what mm. I also find interesting right now, we have used this, this the interaction between spin and magnetic field. What if, you, if we can uh, do something with the neutron mass and gravity, for example, Is, would this be possible? To look how a new neutron is distributed in the gravitational field, for example. But that's that's a much weaker interaction, so it's, it will be difficult. One thing I, I would maybe want to suggest sometime is also to look a little bit at phase shifts. That could be done uh, in something like a Cheshire Cat scenario too. Um, but there's an interesting thing about the uh, uncertainty of our method. So um, there is actually a natural error that immediately occurs when you look at phase sensitivity. Um, and there's an interesting relation to the information about phase that you can get out of an interference experiment and uh, the uncertainty of the path. So we have been operating in the regime where you get no real phase shift information, where the, the interference is super stable against small phase shifts. If you go away from that and go in a region where it's sensitive to phase shifts, then actually you do observe uh, a fluctuation. Then you start to observe statistics again. But these are the Osaba Hall uncertainties, which, yeah, <laughs> the, the uh, 
the Wien group has also studied a lot. <laughs> I think Stefan Sponer here is, is really interested in that. And we might actually also explore that a little bit more. And of course, I should also say uh, here in our group, um, I'm just uh, getting a bit busy with two doctor students who are trying to work in the theory direction on the topic. And um, I think it's worthwhile to really try to uh, find out every detail of quantum interactions. So the thing that we really don't understand enough is how quantum systems interact and uh, communicate the information about their properties. Once it's clear that the reality of the object comes from the interaction, it requires a much more detailed and much more resolved look at how interactions really work. I think... I do, I do hope that the, the young guys do a little bit in that direction because <laughs> they should be getting in on it too. Oh, very interesting. Yeah. Well, I think we're getting to the end of our time slot here, and I, I appreciate you both for coming on and chatting with us about this uh, amazing experiment and looking forward to, to more in the future uh, to elicit some more information about quantum mechanics and, and reality. Uh, and for coming on the show, I'm going to send you guys both a T-shirt uh, for the rational view. <laughs> so thank you. Uh, arigato donkashen. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Thank you. If you'd like to follow up with more in-depth discussions, please come find us on Facebook at The Rational View and join our discussion group. If you like what you're hearing, please consider visiting my Patreon page at patreon.podbean.com slash the rational view. Thanks for listening.